Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today on The Argument, we are tired of COVID. So what are we supposed to do about it? We've been in this pandemic for two years now. And last week, we reached a new turning point. The CDC now suggests that 70% of Americans can stop wearing masks. That's a new guideline that's based on hospitalization numbers, not just case counts. It's the latest piece of guidance in the ever-shifting messaging of this pandemic. And if you're a person who follows what the CDC says, even if COVID is the only time you do that, it's been really hard to keep up. I'm Jane Coaston, and I am, as the youth say, vaxxed and relaxed. I'm going to restaurants, I'm going to grocery stores, and yeah, I'm triple vaccinated. I've resumed my life, but I know it's confusing to know what's okay and what's not okay to do. And I'm a healthy 34-year-old. What about folks who are immunocompromised or children under the age of five? More than 7 million people in America are immunocompromised. That could mean they have cancer. That could mean they have rheumatoid arthritis. What are they supposed to do? So I've been thinking a lot about how we bridge the gap between changing public health messaging and how you and me live our lives. I'm joined today by Dr. Monica Gandhi. She's an infectious disease physician whose work on HIV informs her assessment of COVID outreach. And Dr. Aaron Carroll is chief health officer at Indiana University. We've been in this pandemic for two years now, and I think it's safe to say that everybody is tired. We are tired and confused about what we should be doing, what we need to be doing, what the right thing to be doing is, what is the right thing to be seen doing. It's complicated. Around 65% of Americans have been fully vaccinated, which is thinking about the last time that like 65% of Americans did pretty much anything, and it's pretty good. So today I want to hear from both of you how you're thinking about this moment. But first, both of you work in public health. And so I want to start off by asking how you're thinking about COVID risk for yourselves and your families at this point in the pandemic. What do you do and what do you still avoid doing? Aaron, do you eat in restaurants right now? Yes, I do. Absolutely. I have been for some time. Although I will say, you know, Indiana has been much more relaxed in general than I think certainly some coastal states. So we, we've we had indoor dining for a long time. And yes, we have been. Monica, have you? Yes, I have. I trust and love the vaccines. Yes. Do you both travel? Yes. In fact, I was just in New York, I think about a week ago, eating in restaurants. Monica? Yes, I have consistently. And um, I was in Utah just a couple of days ago. This is good. This is good. This is all good to hear. <laughs> I have been masked. I have been traveling. I've been on planes. Planes are still bad, but that's more because I have a fear of flying, not because of anything that the planes did at all. Very well ventilated, in fact. Aaron, I know that you have two kids in high school, I believe, Mm -hmm. and then you have a child who's at Purdue. Has anything changed with regard to school or precautions in that way for you? For them, absolutely. So about a week ago, they went mask optional in their school. If you'd asked me that day, I would have sworn that 
no one would ever wear a mask again. But what I found was that they said in some classes, nobody's really wearing a mask. In other classes, either a teacher expressed a preference or enough kids were wearing a mask that most kids then chose to wear a mask. And what struck me is if 16-year-olds can figure this out, I really think the rest of us are probably able as well. Yeah. For both of you, there's a lot that you both and I are doing. Is there anything that you did before the pandemic that you are not doing that at some point you might start doing, but you're not doing right now? Monica, is there anything for you? There isn't. Um, I really just really want to extol the power of the vaccines. <laughs> I just think it's so that, yeah, there isn't anything. I mean, things aren't as open in San Francisco, but I hope they will become. Aaron, anything? I'm still probably a little skittish about huge, large, massive indoor gatherings uh, mm-hmm. where I don't know everybody. Like, I think I would probably not attend a packed concert yet. Right. But in situations where I do feel like I have a better handle on on who is there, uh, like, for instance, an IU basketball game, yeah, I, I love going. Um, other than that, there isn't much left, I think, activity-wise that I won't do, but I still do approach some of them differently. There may be some situations where I might still mask. There may be some situations where, you know, I suppose an antigen test ahead of time would be appropriate. But I feel like that there are ways to do almost everything I used to in some way that is safe enough. One thing that we've learned during the pandemic, and Monica, you've done a ton of work on HIV, and I'm sure that you learned this lesson previously. We are bad at communicating science to non-science people. And I count myself as a non-science person. In my olden day job, I worked at a pediatric HIV AIDS foundation. And so I thought a lot about how mother-to-child transmission of HIV is communicated and discussed and what that means. And so much of that job was about like, here is the science. Here is a human being who does not want to hear about it. How do we bridge these two? Because science, as we've learned during this pandemic and during other pandemics, can change quickly. But public health messaging is slow. You know, the CDC would really rather women of childbearing age not drink alcohol and that you never eat rare meat, which I do. (laughs) So I want to talk about messaging because a big part of the conversation around COVID in the U.S., is the botched messaging by public health officials in all sorts of different directions. Monica, I'm curious as to what you think about the new mandates and whether you agree with them and what the messaging should be here. How do we get this right or is it too late? You know, two things that have concerned me about the messaging about vaccination in the United States is I felt like it wasn't positive enough. It wasn't optimistic enough. It wasn't like it's unlocking the key to normality. And so I wrote a piece, and it's now a year old, where I said, don't message gloom and doom about the vaccines, message optimism. And what happened here is that there was quite a bit of confusion about when the CDC took off masks for the vaccinated in May and then put them back in July. Because I think what they were trying to do in May is say, hey, if you're vaccinated, this is great. Like you get to go back to normal life. You don't have to wear a mask. But it was sort of a problem because it led to this two-tier society. And then when they put them back, I think it messaged two things. I think it messaged that nothing changes after vaccination. And that isn't true. Even though the vaccines increasingly are not sterilizing, your protection 
from severe disease after vaccination is so profound. I can't extol how well the vaccines work enough. Like there was a CDC study on January 7th that showed the risk of someone like you, who said that you don't have other medical conditions, your risk of after even two doses of having a severe COVID outcome is 0.00003. So that's four zeros and then a three. I mean, that's how safe you are, you know, being out in society in your demographic. And then in other demographics, older people with four comorbidities like my father and other demographics would include those who are severely immunocompromised absolutely need a third shot. They need actually probably a fourth shot. There was this idea of, I feel like we didn't message how great the vaccines were. That's what I think. And then I also thought the messaging around vaccines not reducing transmission was a little off because they don't block transmission. That's fair. But they do reduce transmission. You're less likely to even be infected, period, if you're vaccinated. That means by definition, they reduce transmission. And then finally, I think the booster conversation, we did get a little lost where it made it seem to people who were not sure about vaccinating that the vaccines didn't work. And again, they do work very well. That was my exact. <laughs> so like, I actually think the communication problems are structural and, yeah. and are, you know, predated COVID and will long last after that. Everyone wants a soundbite. Everyone wants a tweet or a thread or a TikTok that's just going to tell everybody all the information they need to know or convince everybody who won't get vaccinated to get vaccinated. If one person goes to visit the Oval Office, pick your celebrity, all of a sudden everyone will go get vaccinated. That's never going to happen. And even when we talk about how information gets disseminated, it feels like it's most often on cable news where you get a panel, everybody gets a minute to say something. It's probably pretty basic. There's no nuance. There is no question you could ask me about COVID that wouldn't take me minutes to answer. I try very hard not to do ever cable news, for instance. I can't stand it. Long form format, the actual ability to have a discussion and get into the nuance is the only way I feel that we can do really good science communication on something as detailed as this. And that rarely, rarely happens. So what the CDC does and what most often happens is they try to come up with an answer that is as short as possible and applies to everyone when that's almost never the case. There's nuance. And I think there's nuance to the guidelines. And every time the CDC tried, it was big, broad messages that would try to be algorithms by which individuals should act. And that's not usually what the CDC does. The CDC does... Can I ask you a fast question about what you just said? Yeah. Because do you think there's something more peculiarly American about sound bites, about don't say no, stay at home, masks save lives, get vaccinated... Do you think there's something, and I would ask you, Jane, too, the phrase just say no, which we didn't really appreciate Nancy Reagan using that for the complex problem of addiction. Is that American? <laughs> I don't think it is. I <laughs> okay. think it's modern media. Okay. I, I okay. think it's that we have now moved everything from long form interview into incredibly packageable and tiny amounts that people can just digest. They want quick answers. And I found that good science communication can rarely be done that way. I don't know, Jim, right. you you yeah, probably more plugged no, into media I, than I am. I think that that's one of the challenges here, which is that if you are going to explain something correctly, it is going to be more complicated than if you explain something quickly or in a way that could be tweeted or shared rapidly, especially because the information is going to keep changing. 
Aaron, you wrote a piece for The Times called To Fight COVID, We Need to Think Less Like Doctors, where you talked about how the kind of focus on individuals had been leading us in the wrong direction during the pandemic. And I'll quote that you said that the CDC and the Food and Drug Administration essentially argued that if something isn't close to perfect and doesn't maximize the safety of each individual person, it's not worth it at all. You talk about that with uh, N95s or with how people are perceiving individual risk. Do you think that mask mandates, vaccine mandates should then be highly localized? And I'm curious as to how you account for how different Each locality, you know, we are all in three different places with three different ways of dealing with this pandemic. How can a localized mandate help account for the fact that people move around? No, I the thing about a mandate is it's a population level decision and we've not done it like we're not doing population level things. That's what we do as an individual where it's more focused on well, you should weigh your risks and benefits. All the arguments we make for vaccination, almost all of them are individual, that you should get vaccinated because it will reduce your chance of severe illness by a dramatic amount. And then what happens is some people go, but I don't have a dramatic risk. Why should I bother? When so much of the argument for vaccination is, well, that's how we protect those who can't protect themselves. We get tons of people vaccinated against a disease, and then it's much less likely to cause an outbreak. It's a communal thing. It's it's why we fail, I think, so often at flu vaccines as well, because we make it about you instead of protecting those who can't protect themselves. But that's not just a COVID thing. The reason we reach high levels of vaccination for any disease is because we focus on kids in schools and we say, get vaccinated to go to school. And eventually vaccinated kids become vaccinated adults. And a couple decades later, we have herd immunity. The problem is we don't have decades. <laughs> We're in the midst of a pandemic and our usual route of get vaccinated in school and someday we'll all be okay doesn't apply. Right. I also think that part of the individual approach is because, you know, we saw like get vaccinated so that you can go visit your grandmother. But that's still, again, about you doing things and getting people to do things for other people. Historically, kind of difficult. But I'm, I'm curious, Monica, what you think about localized mandates and what your thoughts on mandates are more broadly. You know, it's a great question. So there's really two types of mandates. There's mass mandates and vaccine mandates. Those are the only mandates that were put on in the country. And and then things like um, closing businesses and schools and all of that. But if we start with mass mandates, to say everyone should wear a cloth mask, you know, actually doesn't make sense with, you know, how the virus works or a combination of aerosol and droplet. And at the end of the day, it's specific kind of masks. They had to be super fit and filtered. So as we're having these conversations about mask mandates dropping in the United States and going to mask optional, it really, in retrospect, I'm actually not sure that mask mandates change that much as opposed to advising people who are more at risk to wear better masks. And so my family's example is a good one. My father's 87 and taking chemotherapy right now. I won't let this man anywhere without a very good mask, KN95 or N95. So we're just in a totally, you know, every it becomes an individual choice and the right kind of masks. Vaccine mandates, I will say, you know, I supported, I wrote a piece for Daily Caller, which was um, a hard place to write a piece for in a way about vaccine mandates. But I did that deliberately because I wanted to appeal to an audience that isn't the New York Times. And please don't look at the comments to that um, article. Oh, no, um, no, no. <laughs> my, my, I no. think my children did and they were they were like, you're not a horrible person. And I said, well, <laughs> so 
The problem is now, you know, it kind of goes back to what the CDC just did with the hospitalization metric. There is natural immunity. We have a lot of natural immunity in our population. It's why Omicron, I think, is going to get us to a place where we can manage the pandemic as endemic management. Uh, Probably three quarters of the entire population of the world saw Omicron. But my point is that things have changed with all that natural immunity, and it makes it harder to justify that someone, frankly, should be fired for (sighs) not being vaccinated. Because I think I I don't think we're being you know, inventive enough with respect to mandates. Mandates don't have to be do what I say or you go to jail or you get fired. I think we could come up with a quote unquote mandate that isn't you get fired, but is that you do something else or some other thing that in some way makes the default get vaccinated and pushes more and more people to get vaccinated. So I, I wrote my mandate article for the other audience for the Times, but there are other ways to do mandates that would just get more people for that to be the default that might get us in that direction. And I am i do believe we are in a period of relative safety at the moment. But don't you think we were too harsh? But no, we have a mandate at Indiana University and no one got expelled. I guess the 1,400 New York employees that were fired that So that's not the way ago, to do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So don't don't make it firing. Yeah. Make it something else. Now, some number greater than zero will see this as a cause and will try to get fired. But as we have with schools and vaccines for decades, we can have mandates that still accommodate people at the edge who have concerns which rise above the vast majority of people. I, I think that, yeah, no, firing, but that's avoidable. We could come up with something. No, yeah. And I'm just saying, I totally agree with you as an infectious disease person. Like we want to encourage vaccination the best we can. And things like asking people to test is actually quite a difficult task. And so that could be a incentive to get vaccinated. But what I found myself very surprised about in the United States is how harsh things got. And I think that was the messaging. Monica, have your views on mandates changed over the last two years, do you think? Well, yes. I think it's actually really important to change your views with new data. And things do need to update and change as new data comes in. So, for example, everyone thought it was the right thing to immediately close schools. I don't think a public health person didn't say that. But you have to then change when you look at data. So deep cleaning, temperature screening, how well-ventilated planes are, all of this became data, right? And masks, we got a lot more um, data on masks. So you must update with time. If you don't update with time, you will lose public health trust, especially over two years. Right. But Aaron, I feel as if that to me seems like such an obvious point, but I would love it if public health officials were like, we were wrong. Surfaces don't really carry covid It turns out that you didn't need to wipe down your groceries. It turns out masks do matter, but it has to be high-quality masks. But I would wonder, and I'm curious to get your views, if the challenge is that, like, there's the people who are doing the research, and there are the people who are trying to message. And a lot of the messaging is about trying to figure out what people will or will not actually do. There's a lot of weird, like, reverse psychology taking place here, in my view. And I'm curious as to your thoughts here on, like, Are public health officials worried that if they say that they were wrong, people will be like, well, maybe the vaccine is made out of cheese and you're just lying to us, too? (laughs) Like, when you have so many inputs here, is that the reason why you're not hearing more? Like, we were just wrong. Well, first of all, I think 
that people do say that. I think good science communicators will admit when they were wrong. and But I think also good science communicators hopefully speak with the weight of evidence behind them at all times. So sometime, when it was closing schools at the beginning, I think I wrote a column where I was like, look, there are two sides of this. I can almost understand both. I think at the moment with the unknowns that we have, we should tip towards in March of 2020 closing schools. But as we got more and more data, it tipped back. But I was hedging even then. I'm like, this is not a no-brainer. But it just seems like if we're shutting down the rest of the world and going into lockdown, schools are probably not a great idea. But later that changed. Also, I don't think it's the CDC's job, and this I might be in the minority, but I don't know, to tell us what they think people will do. The CDC has, and in fact, the WHO and others have for years said what they think we ought to do. Eat almost no salt. Eat very low levels of fat. Never eat raw cookie dough. And most people don't listen because they say this is what we believe for the most safety you should do. I don't think that that's the best way to do it, because I think that for those organizations, often they talk about risk as if it's binary. Risk exists or it does not. Risk almost always exists. But we don't have those kinds of nuanced discussions because it's always just quick announcements or or things that have to get out and everybody has to know. Ironically enough, the, the one thing I think I haven't changed on is vaccine mandates. Uh, I, I believe vaccine mandates were essential before. I believe they're essential now. We can argue about what the word mandate means, but there is no communicable disease for which we have achieved a reasonably high level of vaccination that does not have a mandate behind it. HPV, for which there really isn't a mandate, is like 22% of young adults. Without a mandate, we do not achieve high levels of vaccination. And given how much we know we need it, I think mandates for vaccines are appropriate. In fact, I far favor them more than I do mask mandates because the benefits are so massively clear. But we we just have decided mandate means do what I say or there are severe consequences. We could do it differently. We do all the time. Monica, I'm curious as to your thoughts on Aaron's point about how the CDC's job is not to convince or reverse psychology, just to say, like, here's what you should do. And then people are like, okay, cool. Back to my raw meat. (laughs) I think the problem what ended up happening in this country is that, of course, they have to err on the side of risk factors and caution and everything that they say. But the codification of that became you're a good person if you do this and you're a bad person if you do this. And that, I'm going to say, is uniquely American. I feel that we have this streak. And now I'm going to go back to my fact that I'm an HIV doctor. There was this idea of stigmatization and shame that has been true of every infectious disease. So cholera, you're the dirty people who have to use the pump in the middle of, you know, John Snow, you know, close down the pump. People, Break the pump handle. You're, dir- you're the dirty people who have to use the pump. I mean, there's always been stigmatization. So all of this means that the stigma and the shame aspect of infectious diseases was not going to leave COVID, but it was really prominent with HIV and people were able to stigmatize and shame LGBTQ populations. They just use this, you know, you're something's wrong with you. You got HIV. Oh, it must be because you're gay. And, and especially yeah. because I think that a lot of the mandates that were around the early days of the HIV crisis were mandates or, you know, shutting down bathhouses. All of this was intended to impact people who were already on the outs of society, whether it was LGBT people or it was Haitian immigrants or intravenous drug users. So I always keep thinking about how, like, 
If COVID were a disease that were only impactful in a group of people who are already on the outs of society and not most impactful in a group of people who are in that we in, yeah. generally care about, yeah. you older know, people. older people, yeah. Yeah. I'm very curious whether or not our mandates would be much harsher or much more widely accepted. But it goes the other way, too, that I think that the CDC, you know, is to message risk, but to call someone a bad person if they got COVID, to call someone a bad person if they were happy taking off their mask after the vaccine, to this shame and stigmatization. The reason I think it's uniquely American is I think it has to do with this Puritan aspect of the country. Aaron, so, you really want to disagree with me there. Yes, you, you've, been making, what, yeah, you've been making faces. I, I need to hear from you. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to interrupt, but it's like, I, I actually think... I think your examples are perfect examples why it's not American. Snow in and the pump, like these things existed long before America and have been part and parcel of human behavior forever. Like the diseased are other. I absolutely think it's happening in America, but I, I do think that this is worldwide and human. But I completely agree that COVID has turned a bit into a morality play. Of all the columns I've ever written, the one that garnered the most anger and hatred towards me was one I wrote in 2020 saying, like, maybe we shouldn't judge so much. I just felt it around me. Like, just, it was, you know, almost like shaming on behavior because that could lead to COVID. And I was just trying to say, like, that's not terribly productive. Um, because if we drive behavior underground or we start judging people based upon which they get a very highly infectious disease, it almost always winds up ending poorly for for humanity. You and I have had very similar courses. I didn't even realize like, that. I, I wrote like, like so outdoor much. dining and yeah, people got so mad at me. Since the Omicron surge, I know more people who personally have gotten COVID than the rest of the pandemic combined. And this is when it finally hit even the people who really believed they were doing everything right. And I saw some people fall apart, you know, just absolutely lose their minds because I guess after thinking that you need to do something wrong to get COVID, finally getting COVID is meant you must have done something wrong. But I, I don't think that we are any different than, than this seeing this again and again and again throughout history. You had a huge response to my interview with Alexander Vindman on the war in Ukraine. I think we're all trying to figure out how did this happen and what happens next? I want to know what questions are on your mind about Ukraine, about Putin, about how American politicians are reacting. Leave me your questions in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast. It's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening.
So we've established that we're all tired and annoyed. And we want to get back to some semblance of normal. But what normal means varies wildly depending on a lot of factors. Do you have young kids who are too little to be vaccinated? Are you immunocompromised? What is everyone else in your community doing? My producers told me that they still look at local COVID tracker dashboards. I do not. Clearly, there's some use to having information about COVID for people to consume, because I can tell you, people click on information about COVID. But someday the New York Times will stop having a COVID map on its homepage. So, Aaron, I'm curious, are people getting too much information, too little information? And are they getting the right information right now? Well, I think the last part is exactly right. Um, So I look at dashboards all the time, but that's because I'm managing a population. But I make no individual decisions based on that information. Because again, my personal decisions are based more on the fact that I'm boosted, my kids are boosted, my wife is boosted, all my friends are boosted, and I know the danger of level of most of the things that I engage in is pretty low. Therefore, I'm mostly or more back to normal. If you only look at the the U.S. tracker map that the New York Times has, that tells you nothing about your community. And most of the people looking at data aren't looking at that. Yeah, you know, I wrote a piece for the New York Times about tracking hospitalizations and telling the public about hospitalizations, but not about cases. And actually, that's what we do for influenza. So if you think about it, you know, the reason we used to think so much about cases is because we were really worried that there was a parallel relationship between cases and hospitalizations in a completely non-immune population. And then what happened is we got the vaccine and there were people who got the virus, of course. 140 million people look like they've gotten the virus per a CDC report. And the NIH actually estimates that 70% of children have seen the virus. So a lot of people have seen the virus. We have vaccines. Putting that all together, cases and hospitalizations do not track in the same way they're decoupled. So telling people the cases every day is really scary, I think, and can look really scary. And that's not at all what happens with endemic management of other viruses. What happens is that the health departments track cases, but the public doesn't click on a link and know the number of cases in the United States. Also, by the way, people are doing home testing and it's not even, those aren't reflected in those numbers. So those are underestimating the cases. So I think it's important to stop reporting cases out to the public. People can know them if they want, but health departments should track cases. Health departments should track wastewater surveillance. And what we should be telling the public is what's the burden of your disease in prevalence of disease in your hospitals? And that's why the mask guidance, I think, got linked to hospitalizations instead of cases. Can, I want to ask you a question because I've before, long before the pandemic, I was on soapboxes every year like people don't take flu seriously enough. I do not take the flu seriously <laughs> enough. And then I will get every three years I get incredibly <laughs> sick and then somehow I memento it from my memory and forget entirely. I, so I would say like if we covered flu the way we covered, you know, Ebola when it we had like one case in the United States. If we every day showed the death toll today from flu, I wonder if like people would take flu seriously, which would be great. But I actually have a different take on that. But I would say what I actually now want is better flu vaccine and better treatments for the flu. Beyond that, 
people wanting to be together is not abnormal. That's human. It's like primates like to be together. So I find this objection to like a normal life very odd by the media because we have tools. The medical system has your back. We have vaccines. We have therapeutics. But that is what creates the fear is going to the New York Times website and looking at the number of cases And at some point, that's just got to go. We want to not keep on infusing fear into the population once we have the tools of how to manage COVID. I think that one piece of this, and I mentioned having kids earlier, is that there's still a lot we're learning about vaccines for kids. For example, there's some new data out that shows that with Omicron, the Pfizer vaccine isn't as effective at preventing infection in 5 to 11-year-olds, even though it's still effective at preventing severe illness. So I'm curious to hear from both of you how parents should be behaving or how we should be thinking about schools. I think we focus on school because it's what we can control. But I don't think there's a lot of evidence that says school is the most dangerous things the kids do all day. I don't think there's much evidence for that at all. If people think also when the vaccine is available that like 100 percent of kids are going to instantly get vaccinated, that's not going to happen. I mean, we can see the percentages of kids who've gotten vaccinated so far are already low without mandates we don't get very high levels of vaccination in general. So it's, I understand everyone's hinging and waiting on that announcement and I get it, but I don't think the world will look too much different for many people at that, you know, in that age group after the vaccines are available than before. Monica, what do you think? I thought it was incredibly sad that schools were closed and bars were open. And, you know, I wrote a lot about that. I thought it was just terrible. Vaccines for children not preventing infection, but preventing severe disease is a brilliant outcome of the vaccines. That's the actually fundamental outcome of the vaccines for everyone. And a child should never, ever die of anything. And if there's a vaccine preventable death, then children should be vaccinated. And then the only population that can't be vaccinated right now is four years old and under. And I do have a suggestion for that because there is this vaccine that I keep on trying to push um, on social media called Covaxin, which they put in on November 5th, their, their EUA to the government, and it goes down to the age of two. And so we could get it down to two right now. We could just, like in a heartbeat, we could just approve Covaxin down to the age of two. And then six months to two-year-olds did actually have a good immune response to the Pfizer vaccine at three micrograms. It was just that two to four didn't. So I have a solution to get even little kids their vaccine right now. And I don't know how many times I have to keep on writing this on social media, but please, let's get vaccines for the little kids. That leads to where I want to end our conversation, which is that, how should we prepare for the next pandemic? Like, it's because it's, I, I know, you're you're both, one of you is laughing and one of you is looking sad, understandable, yeah. <laughs> looking very sad, which I think is telling. Because in terms of thinking about health equity of some sort, and in terms of thinking about how public health officials should prepare for another pandemic, if there is something that we can start doing or something that public health officials can start doing that won't fix everything because... This is the argument, not the solution podcast. What can we do? What can they do? Well, they need to be funded. Public health is massively cost-effective. We don't invest in it. And it caught us with our pants down for this pandemic, and it will for the next pandemic as well. We don't have the infrastructure to do contact tracing if we need to. We don't have the infrastructure to really get testing out to where it needs to be in the community. We constantly throw money at the healthcare system. And the healthcare system is what you want if you have COVID. But if you want to prevent COVID, 
We need a public health system, and we do not fund or build that anywhere near the degree to which it needs to exist. I agree with that, but I also would say two things. One is we do need like a better look at our hospitals and staffing and capacity because now we're going to be asking people to stay home if they're ill, and all of us used to go to work when we were sick. The second is that... I think we have to be able to say I was wrong and I'm really sorry. Instead of saying, yeah, the fomite data doesn't look good and we really don't have to clean things. Or for example, contact tracing fell off the guidelines at the CDC because Omicron is just too transmissible to contact trace your way out of like an infection like TB. Say it, like come out and say, hey, we were totally wrong. It's not surface spread. Any school who's still doing the deep cleaning, any place who's still doing the deep cleaning, please stop. Really sorry. Hey, we were wrong that vaccines aren't, with time, they're not going to block all transmission, but they do decrease transmission, but they don't block all transmission. But aren't we so lucky that they block severe disease, which is why we noticed COVID to begin with? I would say what I'm concerned about is we're ending this pandemic or we're going into the endemic phase with a lot of distrust in public health. And that distrust goes to MDs and PhDs and epidemiologists. And I don't want us to face the next pandemic with having distrust of the CDC, of FDA, of NIH. I am curious for you, sorry for interrupting, sorry. but I'm curious as to whether you think that like, wow, we just had a, a dual sorry in. That's, <laughs> well, neither of us was wrong, but... You know why though? We're willing to say when we're wrong. <laughs> yes, yes. We're willing to it's apologize. We're better people. Anytime I can demonstrate my moral superiority, I will. Are we ending the regulations because we're tired? And we just we need to live with this or because we've actually reached immunity or gotten somewhere. Are we changing the regulations because people just won't put up with it anymore? No, I actually don't agree with that. I think that there are various ways to manage a pandemic and we have two huge tools. And so I would like to reframe the argument that we're just exhausted and we're just said there's something wrong with us and we're selfish and that, that we want to be together and that we want our children to be in school. And I would reframe and retool and say, we have the tools to allow essentially more normalcy. And it's tool-based. It's not based on because the public is tired. What do you think, Aaron? Do you think that this is ending because we're tired or because things have gotten better? I think people are exhausted, but I also think that this is a reasonable time in some places. Like, for instance, what Monica just said is if those things are true in your area and things are going down, then yes. The problem is that we make a blanket statement, it feels like, for the United States. And there are many populations who don't have access to those things or who have not achieved any kind of reasonable level of vaccination. So I do worry that for those people, sometimes exhaustion is the reason that they are giving up. But I do think it is very possible with the tools that are available, if properly applied, that in lots of parts of the country, it's a reasonable time to take a break, you know, stop being so exhausted. Dr. Monica Gandhi and Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you both so much for having a normal conversation where we said sorry and we were polite. <laughs> and all I'm hearing is that I am going to continue doing basically kind of what I was doing. Which is Perfect. nice to hear good. every once yeah. in a while. Yeah, good. I'm going to, um, yeah, let's go eat. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Monica Gandhi is a professor of medicine and an infectious diseases doctor at the University of California, San Francisco. She is also the associate chief of the Division of HIV, Infectious Diseases, and Global Medicine. 
and the director of the UCSF Center for AIDS Research. Aaron E. Carroll is the Chief Health Officer for Indiana University and a Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics at the IU School of Medicine. His YouTube show and podcast is Healthcare Triage. If you want to learn more about COVID messaging, I recommend To Fight COVID, We Need to Think Less Like Doctors by Aaron E. Carroll in the New York Times Opinion section. For Monica's work, you can read Immune Cells Mean Omicron Won't Swamp Hospitals in Vaccinated Areas, co-authored by Michael Degno in the Washington Post. And listen to the New York Times podcast, The Daily's Episodes, Part 1 and Part 2 of How to Live with COVID. You can find links to all of these in our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Vishaka Derba. Edited by Alison Bruzek and Annabelle Bacon. With original music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Mixing by Pat McCusker. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Mary Marge Locker, and Michelle Harris. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Special thanks this week to Christina Samuelewski. Christina Samuelewski.